God's word together. There is a power in the cross that you accomplished for us there, the atonement of sin, the defeat of death, the reconciliation of enemies to you, our holy God, through your Son. There is the power that you have given through that cross and by your Spirit, enabling us to see your glory, to love and cherish and treasure your glory and to treasure Christ and to abhor our sin and cling to Him for forgiveness and yet pursue with all of our might holiness and righteousness that we might honor and glorify You with all that we are. This is the power of the cross. And its end for us who know you is glory. It's heaven. And what a delight and what an encouragement to our hearts that gives us strength to persevere as we meditate on these truths. We do ask you that now you would, Holy Spirit, open our eyes to hear the voice of Christ, as it were, that you would teach us and that you would, by your word, mold us and shape us into the image of Christ, that you would protect us from error that you would lead us into the truth, that you would strengthen us all to the glory of God. We ask you to come and meet with us now, and we pray in the matchless name of him who has released us from our sins and brought us into his heavenly glory. In the name of Christ, amen. Well, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23, verses 13 and 15. Verses 13 and 15. As we come again to this pinnacle moment in the ministry and the life of the Lord Jesus Christ when he exposes and condemns the false leadership of Israel. And these were not merely teachers, as we have noted, who have gone astray. They did not need some mild correction, but these are false teachers. These are those whom Jesus would identify at other places as wolves in sheep's clothing. And they are representative of all false teachers who lead people astray with error and into error. Now there's no greater matter that lies before men than the truth about God and their eternal souls. At the heart of Christianity is a message. It's truth that we cling to and it's truth that we proclaim. We proclaim God. We proclaim Him as Creator, as Holy. We proclaim man as made in His image, yet fallen, sinful, corrupt, bearing the weight of guilt that comes from offending God's holiness and breaking His law. We proclaim Christ, the eternal Son of God, who united Himself to our humanity, that He might stand in the place of fallen men, that He might be our substitute, satisfying the righteousness of God by His life and at the cross and then rising from the dead that He might give us life and ascend to the Father and forever be our mediator in the presence of God. We proclaim that He has sent His Holy Spirit by which He calls men to repentance and faith in Christ to receive all of the benefits of His work on our behalf. It's a message that we proclaim And to be wrong on these things, then, is to not be a Christian. 
To be wrong on the truth of who God is and the truth of who Christ is and what He's done is to not know God. And so it's a, it's a serious thing to be accurate with the truth of God. And to distort them is to distort the true knowledge of God and how we are to know Him. And it has devastating consequences. It's heaven and it's hell. So the, the souls of men lie in the balance of the church's faithfulness to the truth of God and of Christ and salvation and repentance. And we as the church have a responsibility to be faithful, but particularly the leaders have an incredible responsibility to know and to be faithful to the truth of God's Word. Now Israel's leaders stood in a similar position. They were the vehicles of God's truth. And their failure at this point is devastating and it needs to be met with the utmost severity and seriousness from the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is true particularly in light of the fact that Jesus had only a short time left on earth. He's soon going to be delivered over by the traitor Judas into the hands of the Jews, into the hands of the Romans and ultimately crucified. And so it is very important to him that now entering into these last stages of his life that he is protecting the people. He's protecting his people. And he's doing that by exposing these false teachers. And so he gives them stinging words. Look at verse 13. We looked at this last week. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And he repeats this seven times throughout this passage, all the way down to verse 36. And again, this is a serious, serious charge. Let me remind you just briefly of what we noted last week. He tells them, woe. This is a pronouncement of judgment. Both the judgment that this particular group, that group who is hearing his words as he speaks them, that they will experience the judgment of God when he comes and he destroys the temple and he takes away their whole religious system that they're trusting in. He talks about that at the end of the chapter. He'll talk about it in chapter 24. But he's saying more than that. He's also Revealing to them the judgment that is going to come eternally as a result of their rejection of the salvation of God, of their Messiah. They are, as we'll hopefully get to today, sons of hell. He said that other times throughout his ministry. And he is saying that again, it's inherent in the woe. And we mentioned then, secondly, that Jesus is addressing here the scribes and the Pharisees because they are essentially the spiritual and the religious leaders of the nation of Israel. And therefore, they bear a greater responsibility for their teaching and lives. It is just as James would later say in James chapter 3, 1, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, for as such you shall incur a stricter judgment. God holds his leaders and teachers more accountable. Also, he addresses them because, as it was mentioned earlier, they need to be exposed for the protection of the people. These who should have been the light of God were, in fact, spreading darkness. We noted thirdly that the heart of their error is hypocrisy. And it's essentially manifested in two ways. And this again works not only for these leaders, but it also works for all people. But it is particularly damning in the leadership. One, it means this, that their lives are inconsistent with the truth. In other words, what they 
say and proclaim to teach about God is not matched with their lives. And therefore, by their example, they dishonor God. Paul mentions that in Romans 2. We won't turn there. That you who claim to be leaders of the blind, teachers of truth, are in fact bringing shame and reproach on the name of God because of your lives. They're hypocrites. Secondly, it means this. That they had an inner life and motives that did not match their action. In other words, they present themselves as seeking the glory of God and the truth of God when in fact they are only seeking their own glory and are only committed to their false system, not the truth of God's word. And that is what Jesus was confronting throughout his ministry as we see his interaction with these leaders in the Gospels. Now it's important to consider once again, and I think this is worthy of mentioning again, That Jesus is addressing these leaders, these religious leaders, these who are revered as those who have the truth of God and teach it. He's addressing them with harsh condemnation here, but he says something even more stinging and more revealing in many ways back in John chapter 8, verse 44. And he told them this. I want us to consider this just briefly. He said... To them, in verse 44 of John chapter 8, or actually in verse 43, says, Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and he is the father of lies. Essentially, what Jesus is saying there and identifying is that the whole ministry of those who are caught up in this false system is not one of God, it is one of Satan. In other words, it is demonic. It's demonic. Now, it doesn't mean that there was no truth involved in it, but that's exactly what makes deception so deceptive. The more truth that a deception can have, the more dangerous it is as a deception. And so it was with them. And it's important to note here then, Satan's activity is revealed in the area of spiritual deception. And that shouldn't surprise us. We see that right from the beginning of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, he came to deceive about the nature of God and the truth of God's word. And to lead men into sin. And he continues to do the same thing ever since, even to today. He seeks to deceive men in general. That's false religion. 1 Corinthians 10, other places... False religion is called the doctrine of demons. But more specifically, he seeks to distort primarily the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel. Now sometimes people think of evil acts as demonic. We in our own community could think of Adam Lanza as being demonic or being demon-possessed. Some might think that. We think of men in history that committed atrocities that blow our mind. They, they're hard to conceive. Not only individuals like Adam Lanza, but Hitler who destroyed and killed systematically millions and millions of Jews and others. And it is possible that these, and even very likely, were under some kind of demonic power and influence to particularly work the wickedness of Satan among men through the destruction of innocent lives. But it would be absolutely wrong to say that this is the only or the primary 
activity of Satan. And as a matter of fact, I would argue that it is probably the least area of activity of Satan, those kind of crimes. Whatever he perpetrates in terms of taking human life, it is only temporary. It's the soul of men that matters, and that's what he's really after. He can kill the body, but everybody's going to die anyway. It is the soul, it is to kill and destroy the soul that is the mission of the evil one of Satan. We read it this morning. It's appointed for man to die once and then comes the judgment. So the issue, even more serious than that, is the soul. It is truth. The truth about God and how we might be reconciled to Him. Jesus said this in terms of false teachers in John chapter 10 referring to them under the imagery of a thief. He says, the thief comes only to kill and to destroy. So this is a serious charge that Jesus is laying at the feet of these leaders. This is a serious charge. He's bringing on them or announcing to them that their hypocrisy, the system that they are involved in and spreading, is not from God as much as they may claim so. It is, in fact, from the evil one, it is from the devil, and it is deceiving, and it is damnable, and you need to know it. It's crucial. Instead of leading people to salvation, they are corrupting salvation by preventing others from coming, perverting the message of truth, and spreading their condemnation. So read with me, if you will, Matthew chapter 23, verses 13 and 15. And I'm going to say up front, we're going to skip over verse 14, which is taken from... Mark twelve forty and Luke twenty forty seven was put in there later. wasn't probably originally part of this Matthew. So we're going to skip over that and focus on verses 13 and 15. So read with me. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on land, on sea and land, to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Let's look at verse 13 and note first here in their corrupting salvation that they are preventing and perverting the way of God. They're preventing and perverting the way of God. The ones who should be opening the door are shutting it. Who should have been a voice for truth are voices for deception. So note first then, they corrupt salvation by shutting people out of the kingdom. And that's the term that he uses there in verse 13. They shut them out. They shut them out. The term has a basic meaning of this. To prevent passage at an opening. To shut. To lock. To bar. Now Jesus is going to use this term two other times in the Gospel of Matthew. And that's important because I think these other uses have a great bearing. They help illustrate and emphasize what Jesus is proclaiming here. So let's look at them briefly. The first is in Matthew chapter 6 verse 6. Jesus says this. You're familiar? When you pray, go into your inner room, close, that's our term, your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. So here, shut the door means to prevent others from coming in to the room so that you can be by yourself. 
Shutting the door cuts you off from everyone else and everyone else from you. Now, in this passage, that's a good thing. It's so that you can commune and be alone with God and not fear distractions or interruptions. A second use is a metaphorical use, but using the literal imagery here. He says in Matthew chapter 25, it's not you shutting the door, but it's God shutting. He says this, and while they were going away, speaking of the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, while they were going away, the foolish ones, to make the purchase, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went into the wedding feast and the door was shut. Again, a literal image used metaphorically. The point is this, that those who are not prepared for Christ's return at His coming will be shut out of the kingdom forever. It speaks of the absoluteness, the finality, the certainty of being excluded. In fact, verse 11 of Matthew 25 says that they, when they returned, begged that the door would be opened up to them. Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he will answer and says, truly I say to you, I do not know you. So their shut has the idea that the time of salvation has passed. The opportunity has been missed. God has shut the gate. Now the third use is in our passage here, Matthew chapter 23, and it gives yet another nuance. This time it's not men shutting the door to be alone to God, nor is it God shutting the door to those who are foolish and do not receive His salvation. It is false teachers who are shutting the door and they're shutting off entrance into the kingdom from others. And so that's what he says. You shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. You've shut them off. And so he says, woe to you for doing that. Woe to you for doing that. And really the language is quite graphic. It could be translated, shut the door in your face. It's shut from the presence of men or the face of men. That's the imagery and the idea. And what are they shutting off? They're shutting off the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven? Most simply, at its core and its essence, it's simply this. It speaks of the rule and the salvation of God. It speaks of the rule and the salvation of God in Christ. It speaks of the glorious relationship with God that is being introduced and presented to the people through Christ. And it is a kingdom that is uniquely present with the present with the presence of Christ. The kingdom of God has come near. It is near to them. It was the kingdom that Jesus came to announce. Involves confession of sin and repentance. He said, repent that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is the kingdom that he was going to lay down his life so that he could purchase entrance for his people through his death and his resurrection. It is the kingdom and the salvation that he came to accomplish for us. It's the kingdom that he came to announce and the leaders were keeping others from it. He says they are shutting the door and you do not enter yourselves nor do you allow others who are entering to enter in. Basically, not only are you yourselves still in darkness and not in the kingdom, but you're blind and ignorant of God's salvation and you're blinding others. And those who would have been able to enter, you're keeping them from it. You're denying it to them. I want to note here, this does not deny the sovereignty of God in bringing sinners to Himself. All whom the Father gives to me will come to me. And not one of them will be lost, but Christ promises, I will raise them up on the last day because that is the will of my Father and I have come to do the will of my Father. 
This is not denying that God is absolutely certain to bring in all those for whom Christ died, for whom He gave His life, for whom He purchased salvation. Nor does it deny the reality that Christ said He will build His church. He will build it and it will be built. He has promised it. So it's not denying that. But what Christ is emphasizing here is that God uses the truth and He holds particularly responsible those who are to speak His truth and to be a witness to His truth. He's emphasizing here the reality of human responsibility. That there is a human responsibility. God will accomplish His work, but He holds men responsible. Now the question is then, what does it also mean to enter? What does it mean to enter the kingdom? It means to spiritually perceive the kingdom, to understand it, to receive the truth. It is to receive the kingdom by faith. It is to enter into the full experience and the blessings of the kingdom, the full kingdom realities, forgiveness of sin, fellowship with God through Christ, and so on. And these leaders are not only hindering him, but they're forcefully stopping people from entering in. That's the force of the term that he uses here. It's not indirect, it is direct. There's any motion that one may show that they would exercise faith or be being drawn to Christ or be considering the reality of His person or the truth of His teaching, that is to be entering the kingdom that Christ is revealing, it is met by them with absolute hostility and resistance. They're slamming the door, as it were. How then are they shutting the people out of the kingdom? Well, there's simply, well, two options that we could have to understand this. One is this. That they're shutting people out of the kingdom by a false system of righteousness, a man-made system of regulations and traditions that Jesus earlier had accused them of invalidated the word of God in Matthew chapter 15. A second option is this, that he's saying they're shutting them out because of their incessant effort to discredit the ministry of Christ and effectively keep people from their Messiah and thus entering into the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Now, sometimes one of these options, usually the first, is chosen above the other. However, I would suggest that it's not an either-or, but a both-and. His words of indictment encompass both of those realities, their false system of righteousness and their attempts to discredit the ministry of Christ. In fact, they go together. They sought to discredit the ministry of Christ because they were so engulfed and enveloped in their false system of righteousness and a false system of salvation. And those were together keeping men then from the kingdom of heaven. Now let's consider those briefly. They shut off the kingdom of heaven to men by establishing a false system of righteousness. And they did this primarily through their traditions, through the oral law that had been handed down through them and their predecessors. The oral law, which was given to set a hedge of protection around the Word of God and around the law of God, had now come to take on another role and it hid people from the truth of God. Let me give you at least four things, and I'm only going to mention these at first. Four things that they were doing to keep people out by their religious system of the kingdom of God. One, they were hiding from the people the true glory and holiness of God. They were hiding from people the true glory and holiness of God. Secondly, they were hiding from people then the true guilt of their sin. Thirdly, they were teaching people a false way of being reconciled to God. And fourthly, they were exalting a system of man above the Word of God. They were exalting the system of man above the Word of God. 
Let's consider this first couple. They covered over the true nature of the law and hid from men the reality of God's holiness and their sin. And their sin. The law revealed the holiness of God. It revealed His majesty. It revealed His character. It revealed what it meant to reflect Him as the people of God. That's what the law was for. And if it was rightly understood, it should have led to a humble attitude of repentance and reliance on God's grace. That's what it should have led to. And it did to the righteous among Israel. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. He says this, We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. That's everybody. He's already shown that. So that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes what? The knowledge of sin. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But through their traditions and through their oral law designed to protect God's honor and word, they instead hid His holiness, they hid the reality of sin, and they squelched any hungering and thirsting after true righteousness and the mercy and the grace of God. Turn back with me just briefly over to Matthew chapter 5 and let's see this. Let's see this. and I think we're only going to get through verse 13 this morning. Let's look at this. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. He says there, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the kind of righteousness that you are learning and seeing modeled in the scribes and Pharisees is not the kind of righteousness that will gain you entrance into the kingdom of heaven. It's another kind of righteousness. It is, in a sense, like another gospel. It's another way of living to God than what is true. It won't get you into the kingdom. It won't get you there. It won't get you to a true knowledge of God. In fact, the kind of righteousness that they are teaching and the kind of righteousness that they are modeling by their life, he will later describe in that same sermon as a broad path that will lead you to destruction. He'll later warn them and say it is the kind of system that does not bring people to an actual doing of the will of God, despite all of their religious busyness. And that is because it is a righteousness that comes from self, that comes from self. It's not broken over sin. It doesn't seek the righteousness of God alone. It is an entire system that they had constructed that could bring men to a place where they could feel some kind of spiritual or moral merit before God, that somehow God could be pleased with them by what they do. It taught a righteousness that could lead to the attitude and in fact was promoting this kind of attitude that's revealed in Luke chapter 18, you remember, that could say to God, In prayer, I thank you I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. In other words, it was an entire system that fostered that kind of attitude. That if you do this, God is pleased with you. That He's pleased with you. That you can approach God on your own. It is a kind of a righteousness that is attainable by man. And it's the kind of righteousness then that will not get you entrance into the kingdom of heaven. 
It could fill with lots of religious activity, but it didn't produce a genuine hunger and thirst for righteousness and a doing of the will of God. Why do you think that Jesus had to begin the Sermon on the Mount with what? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now that was absolutely antithetical, essentially, to the whole system that they were a part of. Poor in spirit. Jesus says, yes. The kingdom of heaven is not marked by a righteousness that you attain by your deeds, by your works, by the things that you do. It is something that begins with realizing that you are devastated before the holiness of God, which is what the law rightly understood should have produced in them. But the law as it was taught and the traditions of these leaders had cut people off to that. It was a false system. They created their own system. It didn't produce humility. It didn't produce brokenness. It didn't produce a reliance on the grace of God alone. It produced self-sufficiency, self-righteousness. And the church is full of these kind of teachers, these kind of false gospels, gospels that tell half-truths that don't convict the sinner of their sin and that hide the glory of God and the true sinfulness of man. They don't teach a gospel and they don't teach God in such a way that we as the people of God or someone who comes into their assemblies would have an experience like Isaiah had, for example. And that says, woe to me, I am undone. He has seen the glory and the holiness of God and he had no hope but that God would be merciful to him. And indeed, God was merciful to him. God's mercy is there, but it begins with that understanding of who God is. We will more likely hear a gospel today in most churches, praise God, not all churches, that says God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Or that says something like this, all you have to do is say that you believe in Jesus. It only matters that you're sincere when you say it, not whether your life is marked by love for Christ, continual repentance, and the desire to obey Him. Just that you meant it at some point in your life. Or it might say something like this, that God's love is so great, it is so mighty, it is so magnificent, that His anger is so set aside that He would never judge a sinner forever who doesn't repent and respond to him rightly. God would never condemn people to hell. Or it might go something like this. Let's just get people into the building and really tell them good things that God wants to do to bless them rather than make them behold the glory of an all-powerful and an infinite and a holy God to whom they owe all allegiance and who in amazing grace has offered his son in their place that they may escape wrath And be brought to a place of blessedness to serve and honor such a glorious and a great king. Now there is a subtle and insidious kind of error to this gospel. It's a deceiving portrayal of God today that I believe blinds so many people to the reality of sin. To the reality of the holiness and to the glory of God. It's very focused on man and not on God. And it's not simply a nuance of theology. How many are sitting in the pews who have a great supposed love for religion in Christ and are utterly deceived who have never been brought to a place of true repentance? Now sometimes this can bear similarities to a genuine faith. But I would argue here that it is a response to God that these gospel presentations present that most often arises out of self-love and not a true love to God. It promotes a self-love. 
It is essentially a gospel of self-love that starts with man and his happiness rather than God and his holiness. Now, I was tempted to spend the rest of the time here, but I'm going to just give you at least one quote that I think will help this. It's an extended quote, but follow it along. This comes from Jonathan Edwards, who dealt with this very thing. He dealt with this very thing, a widespread religion, an enthusiastic kind of religion that was producing all kinds of amazing responses to the truth. And he was called upon to defend this revival, to defend what was going on against those who were accusing it of being false. And he readily admitted at the beginning, much in it was false, or some in it was false, but much in it was genuine. And how do we know? How do we discern these things? There's nothing new under the sun, beloved. It was the same things that we deal with today. How do we discern these things? How do we discern a gospel of self-love and a gospel of true love for God? Let me give you this extended quote. So follow along. He's defining here self-love. And let me preface this with his, this argument is from Matthew chapter 6 where he says, if you love those who love you, what have you done more than a Gentile? Don't they even do that? Doesn't the most wicked sinner love those who love them? There is a kind of love then that models that is to God, but it's really a self-love. It's not truly a love for God as he is. Let me quote now. He says this, Self-love through the exercise of a mere natural gratitude may be the foundation of a sort of love to God in many ways. A kind of love may arise from a false notion of God that some may see or have been educated in. Or some may have been imbibed with, as though he were only goodness and mercy and no revenging justice, or as through the exercise of his goodness were necessary and not free and sovereign, or as though his goodness were dependent on what is in them, as if it was constrained by them. Men on such grounds as these may have a love to God of their own forming in their imagination when they are far from loving God who sits in heaven." Again, self-love may be the foundation of an affection in men towards God through a great insensibility of their state with regard to God and for want of conviction of conscience to make them sensible how dreadful they have provoked God to anger. They have no sense of the heinousness of sin as against God and of the infinite and terrible opposition of the holy nature of God against it. And so having former sin in their minds such as suits them or formed a version of God in their minds such as suits them and thinking God to be such a one as themselves who favors and agrees with them, they may like Him very well and feel a sort of love to Him when they are far from loving the true God. End quote. And I would submit that that is much of the kind of love to God that fills our churches. It is a self-centered love. That love to God arises no higher than whatever benefit God gives to me. It is not for who God is in Himself. And I would submit to you also that true evidence of the work of the Spirit of God is that we delight in God as God. And then we trust in God as God and what He has provided for us. That we delight in God for who He is. And this is not the kind of God that is presented so often in our churches, nor is it the kind of God that they are presenting these false teachers to the nation of Israel. And in fact, they are leading many people astray because it's only a system of man that they are promoting. It doesn't promote hatred of sin. It doesn't promote a longing for God's righteousness. It doesn't promote true holiness in the life. And so it is with many in the church. It minimizes God's glory. 
And it doesn't produce true worshipers. Only those who are seeking some kind of experience or felt need met, but not a true delighting in God and desiring Him. Now by these teaching, their teaching, then these leaders were externalizing righteousness and they were neglecting the heart. They were lowering God's standard rather than magnifying His holiness and they were, again, keeping people from God. As a matter of fact, Jesus says this over in Luke 52 in a parallel. At the end of some other woes, He says this, Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge and you yourselves did not enter and you hindered those who are entering. There is a key of knowledge that you hold And you're taking it away from men. You're hiding it. You're hiding God. Now let me note a second kind then that these teachers were doing. One, it was their false system of righteousness in which they blinded people to the glory of God, removed from them a sense of their own sinfulness and a cause for them to rest in the mercy and the righteousness of God alone. Secondly, they did this. Because they persecuted and they denied actively the person and the work of Christ. The person of the work of Christ. And when Christ exposed this false system that they were a part of, when He exposed their hypocrisy, they attacked Him and they sought to discredit Him and they sought to discredit Him before the people. And in that way also, they were shutting people out of the kingdom of God because as Christ is revealing truth, they're distorting it. As Christ is revealing the glory of God, they're hiding it. And they're attacking him. And this has been the pattern throughout his ministry. Let me just give you a few examples here. When he revealed the generosity of God for the lost, the magnificent mercy of God for the sinners and the outcasts of Israel by dining with him, what did they do? They charged him with a lack of holiness and purity by reaching out to tax collectors and sinners. In chapter 11, he says they were actually calling him a gluttonous man and a drunkard, not a holy man of God. They shut people out. When he displayed the power of the kingdom of God and healing disease and casting out demons and opening the eyes of the blind, even in raising others from the dead, testifying to his purpose, testifying to his mission ultimately to the destruction of sin, testifying to his person and who he is, what they do? They accused him of working by the power of Satan. That's the devil who's doing that. That's Beelzebub who's doing that. They shut people out of the kingdom of God. When Jesus was announced by John the Baptist, what did they say? They said, well, John the Baptist has a demon in chapter 11, verse 18. When Christ displayed the compassion of God in healing a man on the Sabbath, they accused him of breaking God's law for the Sabbath, of a lawbreaker, they said he was. Even though he had displayed the wisdom and the power and the authority, the compassion, the truth, and the glory of the kingdom, they continually sought to discredit. In chapter 16, they asked him for a sign, more than the signs that he had already done, saying that those were not adequate, trying to discredit him before the people. He called them an evil and adulterous generation. When they hypocritically and deceptively asked him questions in chapter 22, they sought to discredit him before the people. It was their last-ditch effort to him who was exposing them and making them look continually foolish and ignorant of the law of God and of the truth which he was doing, which he was revealing to them. And this opposition followed him all the way to the cross. All the way to the cross. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 27, verse 20, Jesus is now... 
before Pilate. There's an opportunity for him to be let go. His wife had a dream and she said, have nothing to do. She came to her husband Pilate and said, this righteous man is innocent. In other words, you need to let him go. You need to not be complicit with this plan. You need to not become a partaker in putting him to death. And what happened? Verse 20, but the chief priest and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and put Jesus to death. They were intent on shutting off the kingdom of God to the people by crucifying and killing the Savior. And it doesn't end there. They did the same thing. After Christ was risen, the Spirit came and the message of Christ went out through His servants. They sought to silence them at all cost. We see this at the very beginning in Acts 4. I won't go through all of these verses. They observed the confidence of Peter and John. This is the leaders who had brought them in. They understood they were uneducated, that they had been with Christ, but they could not answer their message. They could not answer the truth they were proclaiming. And so what did they do? They told them to get out, and they said that you are not to speak in this name any longer. You're to not to mention the name of Christ And then they beat them and let them go. And that kind of persecution continued on and on and on. Listen to Paul's words in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says this, speaking to the church there. He says in 2 Thessalonians, he says, For brethren, you became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hand of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men. They're shutting you out from the kingdom of God by resisting and opposing the ministry and the message of the person of Christ. Whenever the glory of his person, the kingdom or salvation was made known, they immediately tried to shut it up and to stop it. Why? Because they're hypocrites. That's why. Because they're hypocrites. They claim to love the truth, but they rejected it if it exposes their error. They claim to love God, but they opposed him if it threatens their own honor and pride and esteem among men or the system they created. They claim to love righteousness, but in fact they only love themselves and they only love being thought righteous by others and they attack anyone who would expose their sin. And that's how it is, beloved, with any kind of hypocrite. Any kind of hypocrite. It doesn't have to be a Pharisee. We're filled with those in the church today. Those kind of teachers and those kind of individuals and we need to be aware of that they put on garments of sincerity these did they looked distressed when they were fasting and offering religious sacrifice they put on the robes of a scholar and of a teacher of God they were committed to God with long prayers and fancy words and supposedly offering sincere service but Jesus says it's only to hide a heart of self-love and self-serving delights and when Jesus exposes this what did they do they hated him They hated him. And Luke 11, that passage I read earlier, after that it says, when he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects. If they were truly seeking the kingdom of God, if anyone is truly seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then when your sin is exposed, it would have produced in them deep contrition, repentance, a desire for forgiveness, and to walk uprightly. Like David was confronted with a sin, repentance, change, trust in the mercy of God. But they weren't. They got angry and defensive and they went on the attack. And I would suggest to you 
that if you want to know where your heart is or where somebody's heart is, how do they respond when their sin is exposed? Does it humble them? Does it bring them to a place of contrition and repentance? Or do they become angry? Do they attack? Do they fight? Are they vindictive? Do they try to discredit you? Do they oppose you? Some of you have experienced that in the church. Some of you have experienced that in your own lives. And this is what Jesus is confronting here in these leaders. You're hypocrites. You don't love God. Despite what you say and despite what you do, you are dead in your sin. Well, we're going to have to stop there uh, this morning and we'll pick up the second afterwards. But I want to say to you, this same thing is happening in the church today. It happens through the gospel presentations that I just mentioned that have everything to do with man and very little to do with God. It happens through liberal scholarship today that tries to discredit the word of God, that tries to deny the deity of Christ, that tries to keep people from the truth of God, though it sometimes goes under the disguise of Christian scholarship. It happens in the word of faith movement that minimizes and distorts the truth of the glory of Christ. It happens in emergent churches where the the authority of Scripture is minimized and the truth of God is minimized and doctrine is minimized. It happens all over. And the effect of it is simply this, that it keeps people from the kingdom of heaven. It keeps them from knowing Christ, His grace, and His salvation. It may fill a lot of pews and it may get lots of attention and it may feel good and it may sound good in a lot of ways, but for many it's shutting them off from the kingdom of heaven and from the kingdom of God. And I would remind you also that what Jesus has anticipated before his return is what? The great apostasy. The great apostasy. That means that there will be a very large and professing church that is unregenerate and does not have the spirit of God. And it is this kind of teaching that's going to promote that kind of church. And so we as the Christians, we as the true church of God, need to be very clear on what the gospel is. And we need to be very clear to proclaim it. And when it's proper, we need to be very clear to expose those who distort it. Even as Jesus did here. But what a glorious gospel is hidden. Because it is a magnificent gospel. Because the truth is that God is holy and our sin provokes Him. And the truth is that Christ took that wrath for us on the cross. The truth is that He is, in fact, a glorious and a wonderful Savior who appears in the presence of God for all who depend and trust their souls to Him. He is a marvelous Savior. And if you do know Him, He is more than worthy and increasingly, increasing in His worthiness to our hearts to be worshipped and honored and adored and loved and served and obeyed. He is a glorious God and a glorious Savior, and we would not want to cover that up. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your Son, whom you gave because you did so love the world that you gave your Son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life, be reconciled to you, to have your spirit and fellowship with you in the communion of prayer and delight in you and know the power to obey and the true freedom of forgiveness of sin, the true power to love you and to love others in the spirit of God, 
to know purity and a clean conscience that is clear from the pollution of sin, to have a hope that transcends any disappointment in this world and any suffering in this world because its glory is so great that we will be with you who know you forever in your presence, beholding your glory in hearts enraptured with love for you and delight in you and love for one another. It is a glorious gospel. It is a tremendous truth. Help us to be faithful to the message that will truly bring men into it. Even though it may be unpopular and it may be uncomfortable because of the spirit of the age, but it is a glorious truth that your spirit will cause those whom are yours to love and respond to you in faith and repentance. We thank you again for your word, for Christ, for your spirit. And we pray these things in the matchless name of the Son. Amen.